0: Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Brian F. Joy, M.D., who is a fellow in the Division of Pediatric Cardiology at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. He has already completed a fellowship in pediatric critical care, also at Children's Memorial Hospital. Dr. Joy is with us today to discuss his latest article published in the May 2011 pediatric critical care medicine titled, standardized multidisciplinary protocol improves handover of cardiac surgery patients to the intensive care unit. Pediatric Critical Care Medicine 2011, volume 12, pages 304 to 308. Thank you for being here, Dr. Joy.
2: Thank you, Dr. Parker. It's a pleasure to be here with you today.
1: Would you please start out by uh, telling us about your study, what made you do this study, and an overview of what you did?
2: yeah definitely To start off just to kind of give the listeners a brief kind of overview of the the transition that we were uh were investigating this is uh the the title describes the uh transition from the operating room to the i c u after uh pediatric cardiac surgery and this is definitely one of the more complex handovers that occurs in in pediatrics and it consists of several key elements um uh, which includes the physical transition of the patient and equipment and technology, including monitoring lines, chest tubes, central lines, transition of the ventilator. It also includes the information handoff, which uh, has vital information about the patient's preoperative history, details about the uh, usually complex surgical procedures and operative course, as well as details about the patient's current status. And then lastly involves the the actual transfer of responsibility for the patient. And all of this really occurs at a time of significant human dynamic vulnerability with a patient who had just been weaned off of cardiopulmonary bypass and uh, is coming out of uh, general anesthesia. So to get back to your question of what motivated this uh, this project was that my co-investigators and myself had uh, really seen that in our transition there's a significant variability in the handovers is that uh, in in really all aspects, starting from the setup of the room to uh, the transition of the patient and the information handoff, there was a lot of variability from handovers that that went very well and smoothly and were thorough to those that uh, were very sparse on their uh, information that we received about the patients. And uh, all of this was happening at about the time that a group out of Great Ormond Street led by uh, Dr. Cashpole was uh, looking at this exact transition. And in designing a protocol, they actually used uh, features from the uh, Formula One pit stop and aviation models to help develop their protocol.
1: So how did you go about looking at the handovers? And also, how did you develop your protocol?
2: We started out by because, as I said, all the information we had was really just anecdotal uh, information and not objective evidence that there was differences in the process. So we started out by creating a standardized assessment tool with kind of what we deemed to be the critical features of the handoff, including room readiness, the care providers that are present at the time of the handover, the time to convert monitors and and endotracheal tubes, uh, and then also looking at the information handover itself and what information was provided. So we uh, used a a single observer model, and we tried to make the handover tool as objective as possible. And so we started off by observing 41 uh, handovers and really collecting data on um, all the features of the handover that I just, just mentioned. So, after gathering all that information, we we put together a multidisciplinary team of everybody involved in the in the transition process. This included the ICU bedside nurses, the cardiac surgery nurse practitioners and surgeons, the cardiac anesthesiologists, the ICU nurse educators. ICU physicians, respiratory therapists, ICU clerks, everybody was involved in this process. And uh, with the data we collected, we used that to further help kind of define what the current handover process was and process map the the current uh, activities of the transition team. Um, after, After defining that, then we used some of the quality improvement techniques, including failure mode and effects analysis, small-scale root cause analysis, and we, we found some of the points of the old protocol that needed, uh, needed improvement and were subject to potential errors. And so we designed a new admission handover protocol for this, uh, this particular transition. In doing that, we used several of the features that Dr. Catchpole at Great Ormond Street used um, and took from uh, from the aviation industry and the Formula One uh, pit crew, including the use of a transition team leader, similar to that of a code captain in a uh, in a code situation, so somebody who is overseeing and ultimately in charge and directing people uh, in the uh, in the transition. We also use what we call a sterile team environment, something taken from the aviation industry, where during takeoff and landing, there's no discussion outside of the tasks in the cockpit, outside of the tasks at hand. And then on top of uh, that, we defined the roles of the care providers and then created two tools to kind of aid in the whole transition process. And that consisted of a an admission readiness tool. That was primarily to be used by the bedside nurse to prepare the room for the transition, and the second one being the anesthesia handoff tool uh, used by the anesthesiologist as they're giving uh, the verbal handoff to the to the receiving team. All of this underwent uh, several rapid plan-do-study-act cycles, uh, and some of the uh, some of it was refi- redefined or refined from there. And then we rolled it out to the ICU, which included extensive education of everybody involved. Uh, This education took the form of kind of group education or presentations of the new protocol, one-on-one education sessions for some of the people that weren't able to go to those meetings, as well as uh, online uh, education modules.
1: So what happened once you did all of the education and implemented this new protocol?
2: so um the the implementation was done with a kind of a, a four week uh supervised rollout so we we always had someone there to monitor and and make sure the process was going as uh as the protocol uh dictated and so after we confirmed that the the protocol was successfully being followed with that uh, supervised observation then we uh did the same uh, assessment of the handover using the same uh, assessment tool that we used on pre-implementation uh, assessment of it. And with that, we observed 38 handovers. And what we found was uh, was similar to the study at, at Great Ormond Street, which was that the mean number of technical errors and information omissions were significantly reduced. Uh, the technical errors that we or what we defined as technical errors, were those uh, elements involved in the room readiness? Was the ventilator ready? Was all of the uh, IV tubing primed and ready to go? We looked at uh, interruptions of the of the handover as well as uh, that whether sterile team environment was maintained. And then as far as the information omissions, that was all the information, the verbal handoff that uh, Anesthesia, anesthesia provided, and so in both of those, in in particular, in, in technical errors, was reduced from six point two four initially to one point five two, and information omissions were uh, reduced from six point three three to two point three eight
1: per handoff.
2: Per per handoff.
1: Did you have any resistance from any of the staff in either developing or implementing this protocol?
2: Well, I think that initially there was. Uh, there was some apprehension to, to change things, but I also think that we overcame a lot of that by by involving everybody in the process, giving everybody a voice, and making sure that anybody who had any questions or concerns about the process had an avenue to, to voice those concerns, and we could address those prior to actually rolling out the handover uh, so that and, and that seemed to work really well. It seemed like everyone took uh, took great ownership in the process, and even uh, even some of the people that maybe weren't in full support of it went along with it. And over time, they saw how much more efficiently things things ran with this new protocol.
1: So, on the topic of efficiency, did you look at how long the handover actually took, both before and after?
2: We we did. We we looked at that, and there was. Uh, there was no increase in the overall duration of the uh, of the handover or of the uh, uh, anesthesia's verbal handoff. So I, I feel like we were able to do things just as efficiently, as well as provide what we proved to be more information in the same amount of time.
1: Is this a checklist that um, the nurse checks off before the patient comes back, and anesthesia checks off as they give? report or how do you use your protocol
2: so the checklist that we use are, are more so with the one being with the room readiness and that's the uh, making sure that that everything in the room is, is available making sure that all the, the care providers know that the at what time the heart is coming back and then as far as what happens during the handover itself that is all um, kind of not, nothing that there's a there isn't a, a checklist for that in particular because there is some variability in in exactly you know when particular things are transitioned over and we we allowed for that in our protocol knowing that you know no single patient or no single handoff is is the same and so we had different roles that people did but in, in the end it was the the goals that were more important to to get everything completed and then the other uh, the other tool was the anesthesia handoff tool, which they would write on all the stuff that was all the information that was somewhere in the chart, but difficult to obtain real time when they 're trying to give the verbal handoff, and thus previously had led to a not inaccurate but in not thorough handover sometimes
1: there's been a lot of Attempts to compare uh, medicine and critical care, in particular, to the airline industry, or as you mentioned, race car pit stops, and how do you think that the handoff process, and in particular what you've done with the handoff process, fits into that context?
2: Well, I think that's a that's a very good question because there is a lot of a lot of studies out here that are looking to try to recreate the successes that, that happen in other, other industries, and um, Anthony Chang wrote a, wrote a great editorial in, uh, in the same issue of uh, Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, where he describes that he thinks that some of this literature based on the aviation industry and the Formula One pit crew uh, really oversimplifies some of the quality improvement concepts and, and really doesn't uh, adequately describe the differences between this, these two processes. So I think what we found in our in our research and our protocol is that those features of the F1 pit crew and the Formula One pit crew and the aviation industry were less important. But it was truly the getting people involved in the development of the of the protocol and the and the teamwork and ownership that that built that was the most important part. And I, I think that this is also stresses some of the difficulties of. Uh, doing quality improvement research is that there are a lot of intangible factors that are really difficult to uh, to measure.
1: Has your protocol been used at other institutions?
2: Uh, my knowledge has not been used at at other institutions. We actually just had an excellent opportunity to uh, showcase our our protocol. Is that the uh, Society of Critical Care Medicine uh, Paragon Quality Program was. Uh, interested in filming a simulation of our protocol. And so we did a, uh, a video in which we highlighted some of the, the features of our protocol. And this was actually a, uh, we'd actually previously done a more informal video for our own internal kind of online education program. And so we had kind of, we had initial run through with that. But we uh, filmed the, the protocol with with a simulated patient and uh, I have not seen the final version of that but it will be available as one on one of their uh, online uh, learning modules to hopefully help other programs uh, develop protocols and, and, and improve their transitions.
1: You mentioned the Great Ormond Street Group um, developing a protocol or looking at this handoff process. Do you have a sense of how your process and your protocol differs from what they did, or is it very similar?
2: I, I think that, you know, several of the, the key features are, are very similar. We took from them the uh, anesthesia being the transition team leader. We took the sterile team environment from them and the idea of creating uh, checklists. Uh, some of the things that were different was that they, they've actually got some really great pictures in their article where they look at the uh, that little cartoon where they show all the members of the uh, Formula One pit crew and how they are involved in the the pit stop, uh, and then they do a similar picture of their their own transition and they give everyone a a particular a particular location where they 're supposed to be uh, supposed to be in the room and we uh, We did not uh, define it as quite quite like that we we gave people. Tasks and not necessarily locations where they where they were in the room. So that was definitely one uh, one difference with that. Also, they had their surgeon present for the entire handoff, and that was one part of our uh, protocol that we also changed. Is that we. Um, we had one of the uh, ICU physicians, be it the the fellow or the attending, who would go to the OR near the end of the case as they were closing up the chest. And they would get uh, direct uh, verbal uh, handoff from the surgeons during the case. And then um, when they came back from the OR, it was that representative, that ICU representative, who would give some of the initial information about the surgical procedure. And uh, because one thing we found in our initial observation is that the surgeons had so many so many competing things that made it difficult for them to come back from with the patient right after the OR. That it seemed like whenever they got out of the OR they were getting paged about uh unstable patients or or, um, or patients they had in waiting for them in clinic or or other responsibilities that uh, sometimes delayed their arrival to the uh ICU.
1: I think that's one of the values of the Plan, Do, Study, Act um, process. It allows you to individualize a protocol to the needs of a particular institution and uh, how your unit works while using the overall quality improvement um, principles.
2: I, I would agree with that completely.
1: Where do you think your group might go next or where could we in critical care go to evaluate and improve the handoff process further?
2: Well, I think that in our research and and in a lot of the other um, studies that I've done out there, they have really proven the ability for people to follow the protocols, for for the protocols to improve efficiency and and consistency with the the handoffs, and also um, for the information to be Reliably and consistently passed along. Uh, one thing that we we haven't looked at is how is the secondary handoff is the because usually it's it's handed off to the people during the day and it's the it's really the nighttime overnight crew that that are on when these patients uh, have have trouble and so how is that information passed along in that secondary handoff and and is that information retained? Um, so that's that 's one of the areas that uh that we 're interested in looking at and then the uh, the second area is evaluating the effect of technology on the handoff process is that we recently have uh, started to convert the anesthesia handoff template to a online version of an electronic medical record and to see if if doing so uh, we'll make that information more available to to everybody. Uh, we're we're hoping to arrange it so that that information can be available real time, so they can fill it out while they're still in the operating room, and the team in the ICU can see uh, real time, get an update as to how the patient is doing, uh, and then also secondarily, if we can bring that patient into the into the electronic medical record and make it part of the admission note could also make it a more efficient process for the uh, for the care providers.
1: All interesting areas to um, consider. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make?
2: I, I think I, I would just like to highlight some of the initial comments I made about the fact that I think a lot of our successes with this uh, new protocol came not necessarily from the Standardization of the procedure and the tools, the specific tools that we use, but really getting everybody involved in the process is that in doing that that early and getting um, all the care providers involved, it really made people uh, take much more ownership of the of the protocol. And um, I think that's where a lot of our successes lie. And so I would um, encourage other programs and other people. Uh, looking to, uh, to create a, a protocol such as this to, to do the, the same thing as to, you know, get people involved in the design, the implementation, and, um, and also the evaluation of that protocol. And I think that you will see uh, gains much greater than just what the, the tools can provide.
1: Thank you very much, Brian.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: We have been talking today with Dr. Brian F. Joy from Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago, Illinois, about his article, Standardized Multidisciplinary Protocol Improves Handover of Cardiac Surgery Patients to the Intensive Care Unit, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in May 2011. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners. Including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community, visit www.sccm.org/icriticalcare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker.
0: The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program utilizes a combination of self-assessments, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. To transform your critical care units through participation in the Paragon program, ask to speak with the Paragon Critical Care Program Manager. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, M.D., F.C.C.M., guest podcast editor for Pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the pediatric intensive care unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the I Critical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email i care at s CCM.org or info at sccm.org.